All right, tonight we are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7, finishing that up and getting into chapter 8 a little bit. Uh, We are left off last week at verse 14. We're going to pick up at verse 15, but before we do, I want to look here at Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 through 25. It says, For then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. Now, what I want you to see is We've talked about this last week, but in Matthew 24 here, he's talking about some of the same times that Daniel is talking about. But notice that Matthew says that the times that are going to take place here will be unequal to anything that ever had happened or ever would happen again. That means that worse than the Holocaust. So what's coming is worse than anything you could imagine. World War II, Vietnam... Uh, you know, the civil war battles, whatever you can think of, it's going to be worse than that, it says. But notice it says that if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But he says those days are going to be shortened. And so some of the key things to look for is that it's a time of distress, it's a shortened time, it's an unequaled time. Now, I believe that the tribulation... Uh, Scripture seems to indicate that we are looking at a seven-year period, but three and a half years of that are going to be really bad. Three and a half years of it are going to be kind of life as normal, but yet at the same time uh, under the power, in a sense, you might say, of the Antichrist. Now, where we get this seven-year period is because of Daniel as well, where we see that there is going to be an Antichrist who's going to make a deal or a covenant with the Jewish people, but then it says in the midst of the covenant, he turns on them. And so if he's making a seven-year deal and then in the middle of it he turns on them, it seems that the first half of the three and a half years are not good, uh, but tolerable. That The Antichrist, there's troubles in the world, uh, but somebody's going to need to come in and, and rescue Okay, there's a little speculation here, but some, the Antichrist is going to come in and, and rescue us from the problems. That's probably how he's going to come into power. But then, in the midst of it, all these promises, all this you know, hope that people have, that all ends. And the next three and a half years are, are terrible. So, it says here in Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, Daniel describes a time between the Antichrist here and the seventh trumpet, somewhere in between there. He says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people everywhere, whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so at this time that is unequaled, we know that it's going to be cut short, but Daniel also says that 
your people, God's people everywhere, I think that means probably all around the world, are going to be delivered. Now, it's hard to say, what, what does delivered mean? Does that mean you are you know, killed and you're now brought out and you're delivered and you're in you know, with the Lord? Does it mean that you are raptured out and protected from the rest of some trouble? Does it mean that you are simply uh, protected as you go through it and you're delivered from the problems? Uh, we don't really know. There's a little bit of a mystery there, but uh, as we're going to see, we, we just saw last week that there was 144,000 people who were protected who seemed to have to stay through this. Are they delivered? Well, I would say yeah. But there's also, right after we saw these 144,000 that are sealed, and you know the angels cannot bring about the seven trumpets until the sealing is done to protect these 144,000. Right after that, there's this multitude from every nation, tribe, language, and people who are now, you know, brought to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. And they, I believe, would be delivered, taken out of the issue. Now, I personally would kind of say, if I'm going to have to assign a time to the tribulation, or I should say the, uh, the rapture, I would say right there is what you saw is right after the 144,000 were sealed. However, as we said, that rapture isn't the typical view of the rapture like, boom, you go and you're going with the Lord and it's all over. We talked about how it is a gathering of the people to Jerusalem where he then, God, becomes a chuppah, a protection over those people to protect them. So, in a sense, they're delivered because they're raptured to Mount Zion. And second of all, they are protected because God becomes a hoopah over them. But what I want you to understand is that this is not over yet. It's, it, it, it's still not heaven as you might think of it. Yes, you're with the Lord. Yes, you're protected. But it's not the gold streets that we're talking about, that, or that people think about when they think of heaven. That doesn't happen until chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation after the thousand years of chapter 20. And so I do not believe that these people are in heaven. All right? Now, they are with the Lord. I don't understand all of what it is. But... In essence, if I would make a guess, based on what I understand here in Scripture, is people are basically brought to Jerusalem, raptured there, but the Lord does not come and set his foot down on Mount of Olives, like we see in the Mount of Olives being split in two. That the Lord basically comes down and he's in the air. Remember Thessalonians says we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Well, when we look at Corinthians and we look at Thessalonians, we're seeing the Lord in the air. We meet him up there. But yet when we read about heaven and chapters 21, 22, it's like the Lord is down here on earth. So what's going on, we'll try and make some more sense of that here in a little bit. But just kind of keep that idea in your mind. Now, chapter 15 or chapter 7, verse 15 says this, Therefore, 
They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Now, before we move on, I want you to understand this word temple here. It is used 16 times in the book of Revelation. And every single time it is in reference to the most holy place of the temple. Remember, you had an outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place. And in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant and the cherub. And here we're going to see that they are going to be standing before the throne of God. Well, that Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. That's what it was a picture of. It was the mercy seat. It was the throne. And it says, And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Now, literally, spread his tent over them. So again, I don't think that his foot is on the ground here necessarily yet, but we're seeing that he is going to spread his tent over them. He's going to be that hoopah, that protection over them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's a lot of really good stuff here. Things that you should meditate upon and realize. Uh, just take it to heart. When he says dwell among them, it's literally spread a tent over them. Last week, I think it was, we talked about God is going to be a hoopah over Jerusalem. Now, there is an earthly Jerusalem, and then there's going to be a heavenly Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. At that time where we see the hoopah, it's not the heavenly Jerusalem. I think it's the physical Jerusalem. And we talked about how God is going to gather people to Jerusalem, and then he is going to be a, a protection for them there. Is that part of the deliverance that we just talked about? Possibly. However, we're seeing there's a throne of God. We're seeing all that. I don't know. I mean, that sounds like, oh, when we read this, you automatically think heaven. It very well may be that. However, just to throw a possibility out here only, some believe that the Ark of the Covenant was buried in a cave under Mount Zion. I think that's a possibility. I've touched on this before, and maybe someday I'll actually give you a presentation on it. But in a nutshell, the book of Baruch and Maccabees, when you look at these two books together, these extra-biblical sources, we see that the book of Maccabees tells us that Jeremiah was warned in a dream before the Babylonians came, and that he was supposed to hide the Ark of the Covenant and take it to a secret place. Well, we see that outside of the tabernacle or the temple at this time, there were two pillars. One was called Jachin, one was called Boaz. This is all in the Bible. It describes the, uh, the pillar as a hollow 18 cubit high capital, or a pillar. On top of the pillar was a five cubit high, solid, solid bronze capital. 
Now, I remember reading that thinking that's weird to have a hollow thing and then a solid, really heavy thing on top. Well, what's fascinating, without getting into too great a detail, is that's what the Bible says how the dimensions are. The Babylonians are coming into town. It repeats it again. That's how tall everything is. The Babylonians then come into the city of Jerusalem. And now you have an 18-cubit and a 3-cubit capital. That's what Scripture says. Now, you could say misprint. You know, copyist error, whatever. I'm not really big into copyist errors. They were too careful. The Babylonians come. They tear everything down. You got 18 cubits and 5 cubits again. After they smash that other part to pieces. Why? I don't know. But a theory is that they use sand hydraulics. Because the Egyptians were skilled in sand hydraulics. And Solomon married a daughter of Pharaoh. And the word that is used when it talks about that in is it Chronicles is that he made an affinity with her. And that word is kind of like a pact, like a, a secret pact or something like that. Again, that speculation that this is what's happening. We just know that the Bible says that he made an affinity with Pharaoh. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he says, I have made a place for you and a place for you. Basically, the two words are different used. One is a, like, a temporary upper dwelling or a lower dwelling, and one's an upper dwelling. Now, why two places? Why two different words for the place? I don't know. But the theory is, is that when they built the temple, they had put an elevator in the most holy place. Now that sounds stupid, I know. I was right there with you until being there and seeing some of these things. I'm not going to give you the evidence of that right now. If I ever go through this someday, I'll give you all the evidence. But... The idea is, is that if you have, and I, I know I've mentioned this before, but a, a big pillar and a solid granite rock tube in the middle of it, and you fill that with sand, a heavy capital on top, if you let the sand out of the bottom, pushes down on that middle part. If at underneath there is a base and a fulcrum, the word Boaz and, and Jachin, are related to the Hebrew words that would be base and fulcrum. Okay, force is what Boaz means. Okay, and so the idea, speculation, I can't say that enough at this point. They're coming in, it raises the elevator, they push in the Ark of the Covenant, they let the sand out of the other one, it lowers the elevator, they take the Ark down and hide it in a cave. Now, not speculation. We have found that cave. We know where there is a cave that leads right under to where we believe the Ark of the Covenant was up above. Now it is under Islamic control at this point. You cannot get in there. There are people who have claimed that they have been in there. But in that cave there is a carving of a cherub 
which is always around the throne of God, and it was on the Ark of the Covenant, and that cherub is half-carved, and that's it. In the book of Baruch, it tells that while they were hiding the Ark of the Covenant, the priests began to mark out the way. And Jeremiah saw that and stopped them and said that it needed, you know, don't, don't uh, do that. It needs to be a hidden. doesn't say, I don't think it says that they were drawing a cherub, but it says that they began to mark the way and he stopped them. And in this cave, there is a half-carved cherub. I have seen the spot, not the actual cherub, but they do have a plaque there with a picture of that, but they actually removed the carving out of the cave. But all of that, which I probably didn't need to share with you, but all of that is to say, many people believe, even the Jews, that that Ark of the Covenant is going to be restored someday. One side note, kind of cool, but Again, I'm not going to prove this. This is speculation only. Where that cave is, where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, is directly underneath what is to believe, believed to be Golgotha. And when Jesus died on the cross, the earth was rent. It split. His blood ran down, and it is believed that his blood went and actually dripped right onto the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I wouldn't put it past God to do that. It is kind of interesting in the Old Testament, it was only supposed to be, I can't remember if it was the east side or the west side, one side, and supposedly his blood went then on the other side or something. But again, I have no actual proof of that outside of eyewitness accounts who say they saw it. Anyway, the whole point though is this. What if that Ark of the Co Oh, one important point. Biblically speaking, when the Babylonians come, then it says all of these things they take back with them to Babylon. They take the snuffers, they take the bowls, they take all of this. There is not a single mention of anything from the most holy place. And you would think that of all things that would be mentioned, it would be that. And it's not mentioned at all. So... The idea is that in the last days that God would maybe bring that Ark of the Covenant back. I don't know. I went through that rabbit hole simply to bring you to that point. If it is the earthly Jerusalem that God is going to be a hoopah over, would he possibly restore and bring that Ark of the Covenant back as a picture of his presence? Even though he's there, but as a reminder... We know that when he comes back, there's going to be a lot of the earthly things that we remember as symbols and signs to remember. We talked about he is going, he's seen as a lamb who had been slain. And you think, why? He's in his glorified body. We don't need that anymore. But yet, he still wants you to remember that. Okay? We see in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, the new, that temple, the, the third temple being described, and yet there are offerings being made. So, possibly, there is going to still be the physical Jerusalem, but also the spiritual Jerusalem, but it doesn't come down until chapter 21 and 22, after the thousand years 
in chapter 20. So, in the meantime, before the New Jerusalem comes down, is it, he's a hoopah, we got the Ark of the Covenant back? I don't know. Something to think about. Okay? So, enough said on that part. Now, those who believe in a pre-trib rapture are seeing these people that are standing here before the throne are the ones who have died before the tribulation. John doesn't recognize them here. We talked about that last week because the angel says, who are these? And he says, you know, I don't know. And he says, if it was the church, John would recognize them. So that's one of the supports of that. Verses 19 or 9, rather, and verse 15. We talked about this last week, that they are before the throne, but in chapter 3, verse 21, the church sits on the throne. And so he says there's a difference between these people and the church as one of their evidences. Um, in chapter 3, they're wearing crowns, but we don't see any crowns here. So again, he's saying it's not the church. In chapter 3, we have harps. Here we have palm branches. In chapter 5, verse 10, we reign, but here they're serving. I'm not a big fan of that argument. I think in reigning we serve. But anyway, that is their evidence that this does not seem to be the church. This does not seem to be the bride of Christ. So, I don't know, I, I don't believe that we have been raptured out at this point. You know, that the, before the seals begin. But I want you to see what others teach. So I won't get into too great a detail on that. Well, anyway, let's look at some of these lists of things that they do. Okay, how wonderful it all is. They serve God before his throne. That's one of the things it says there in verse 15. Well, that's not new, and it's not the last time you're going to see it. In Revelation 22, in the New Jerusalem, it says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. Notice, it doesn't just say the Lamb will be there, but it says the throne of God and the Lamb will be there. What is the Ark of the Covenant? The throne of God. In our Western minds, we usually think Ark of the Covenant is simply or purely sacrificial purposes. It's the throne of God. It's the mercy seat. So I can see that it would be there. God is going to spread his tent over them. It's said in verse 15 as well. Isaiah chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy, a hoopah. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. So you're never going to get a hailstorm. You don't need renter's insurance in Jerusalem at this point. Now, what I love about this is, does that remind you of anything else? 
in the past? The Exodus. You are going to see, especially as we get into chapter 8, it is the Exodus. It is a spitting image of what happens in the Exodus. I am telling you, the Exodus isn't just a nice story to read to your kids before bed to freak them out. It is so much more. It is a pattern of what God is going to do in end times. Pharaoh, he is a type of antichrist. It is all a picture. You want to know what's going to happen in end times? Study the past. Study the biblical past. And when we see what goes on in the Exodus, you're going to see what's going to happen in end times. I will prove that as we go. But this is just one of them. When they went out into the wilderness and they were wandering about, before they got to enter into the promised land, God was a hoopah over them. He protected them. He was a cloud by day and uh, you know, to shelter from the, the, the sun, the heat, and also at night gave light and protection. That's what we see happening here as well. Notice the timing is while they're still in the wilderness, they're not into the promised land yet. They're with God. They're safe. They're free. That's the way it was when they got out of Egypt. They were with God. They're safe. They're free, but they're not in the promised land yet. They're going to have to go through some battles. Just like these people have not seen the Armageddon battle yet. These people in Jerusalem that are being protected are going to go through an Armageddon battle. And then they get to go into their promised land. So the timing is exact. Or the timeline, I should say. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now... The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's Revelation 21. We're in Revelation 7. So, heaven hasn't occurred here yet in chapter 7. That's in chapter 21. God is there in chapter 7. They're before the throne, they're before God, but the dwelling of God is not with men yet. I, I don't want to necessarily say he's visiting, but you get my point. Could this be cyclical, cyclical thought? I've heard commentators talk about some of like the patterns like that. The seals and the trumpets the same? Yeah. I don't think so, and the reason I don't think it can just be cyclical, although God does that, the cycles like we've been talking about, I think there's some truth to it, but it isn't like John just going back and relaying more details about the same event. And the reason I say that is because different things happen, and there are differences. Uh, as the seal and the trumpets, as an example, many people will say, because you're going to see that they are cyclical, that one of them will say a third of the sun, but the other one, the entire sun is destroyed. A third of the seas, then the entire oceans are going to be destroyed. And so to relay the same event as an example, John's not going to say, oh, oh yeah, oh, just to give you more details, that third was affected, but so were the other two thirds. Well, not necessarily that, I guess, but like this spot where he's saying, like these verses specifically, 15 through 18, where he's talking about 
the same thing happens in chapter 22, you know, is that in saying, I saw this multitude seated, seated, you know, there's all this crap yeah. going on, and yet, yeah, and then, oh, you know, while all this stuff was going on, you know, here's more information, all the things yeah. that are going on, or, or more events that are occurring. I don't think so. Again, the reason being is that the, the extra things that are there, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. Here, they're at the physical Jerusalem, and he's the hoopah. There, you're not seeing that in chapter 21. And so I don't see that chapter 21 can be referring to what was going on in chapter 7. So would this be like a pre-trib rapture then? No. However, could be a mid-trib rapture. Because what we saw is that these people, as it said there in chapter 7, are those who have come out of the great tribulation. So these are those who have already died. Yes, yep. And so maybe halfway through in the three and a half year period, these are, that this is happening. I don't know. This is all happening around that time of the 144,000. Keep that in mind that those 144,000 are remaining there. They're sealed and they're protected. But these, this group, they're in, in the presence of God and in Jerusalem. So uh, a rapture to Jerusalem, yes. But pre-trib tribulation or pre-trib rapture, I don't think so. Yep, yep. Now some people think and I don't know where I am on this exactly, but that when we go and get up to Jerusalem, or you know, we're, we meet the Lord in the air, that he actually just takes us to Jerusalem. Others say we meet the Lord in the air, and hey, we're in heaven now. It's all over for us. I tend to think it's more of the this, because God comes down, but at this point, He's not setting his foot on splitting Mount, the Mount of Olives. But he's coming down in the clouds. Like Thessalonians would say, you know, that we're going to meet him in the clouds. But then later, I think he's coming down to earth. And he's going to put his feet on Mount Olives. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two. And at that point, then he sets his kingdom up on earth. And the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. Whereas I don't think he's setting his foot on the earth at this point yet, probably. Just guessing, if that makes sense. So, um, let's go about the never being hungry or thirsty again. This group of people, they've been delivered, and there's clearly some sort of supernatural protection here. When they were in the wilderness, they didn't ever have to be hungry or thirsty. There was a short time period there, but otherwise God gave them manna every single day. I kind of think you're going to be eating manna, and you're going to love it, and you're never going to get tired of it, because that manna is the Word of God, Yeshua. Okay? They're never going to thirst again, just like in the wilderness, the rock accompanied them throughout the desert the whole time. We've talked about this before, but just to remind you that everywhere they went in the desert, that rock followed them. Now, the, the Jewish Talmud talks about this, that that rock followed them everywhere they went in the desert. 
And that's a weird thought, imagining this rock, you know, being drugged through the desert as you go. And it's like, uh, that's weird, you know. Yeah, it's a pet rock, all right. But that is exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us. They all ate from the same spiritual food and they all drank from the same spiritual rock that, and that, that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. That's what it says in the New Testament. The rock followed them, that rock was Christ. Here we are, we're never thirsting, we are never hungering, and we are with Christ. Makes sense to me. John 6.35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, it wasn't just a physical thing like right now. Oh, if you believe in Jesus, you're never going to be thirsty again. From a purely physical perspective, like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, when he you know, asked for a drink of water, and she said, well, how are you going to draw water from the well? It's deep. Are, are you greater than our, you know, Father Jacob who gave us this well? And he says, well, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you'd ask him, and he would give you waters that would spring up to eternal life. You'd never go thirsty. He said, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back and drawing water. See, she saw it from the physical. I don't want to come back and have to carry water every day. But this is looking at it from a spiritual, but the spiritual will become physical when the Lord comes back. But not until then. You need water. You go out into the desert, you go out and work out in this heat all day long and you don't drink water, you're going to die. Then you'll never thirst again. But until then. <laughs> but when the Lord comes back, the, spirit, the, the spiritual becomes physical. The sun is not going to hurt him, Isaiah 49.10. There in verse 16 here in, in our text, they will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Beside springs of water. Is he just talking about the physical? You're always going to have springs wherever you decide to live? No. He is the fountain of living water. This is Yeshua being talked about. But nonetheless, they're not going to hunger or thirst, and there's no heat or sun that's going to bother them. That's Isaiah. This isn't new to Revelation. The lamb is their shepherd in verse 17. Well, John 10, 11 says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, a great shepherd of the sheep. Sorry, that was Hebrews 13, 20. And then John says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We know that Jesus is that lamb. He is our shepherd. Well, what's a shepherd do? They would bring you together. They were always there. They watch out. They protect. And they bring you together. And at night, oftentimes, too, they would even set up these little things to lock you in. Well, he is going to be putting that hoopah over us. And he is shepherding, holding, protecting us. If you remember when I talked about the stars, God's word in the sky, uh, Origa in the sky is one of those beautiful pictures because you have this king-like thing holding a lamb in his hand. And for the first time, the bow is at rest. There's, there's no war going on. And it's, it's like he is holding 
his sheep in his hands. He is the good shepherd. And that is what we see even in the constellation of Origa. All right? Anyway, uh, I won't get into the details on that. You can go back and listen to that if you want. Wiping away all tears. Verse 17 as well. Well, we read in Isaiah 25, He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. We see Isaiah 35, verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord. Ransom, that's important. This is Isaiah. How were people ransomed? Well, it's, he's talking about the future. The only way you could be ransomed, that means you have to be paid for, was just like the scriptures say, he purchased us through the blood of Jesus. We've been ransomed by Christ. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. You guys have any troubles this week? All going to go away. All of it. Isaiah 65, I will rejoice. And this is talking about the new heaven and earth here. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. He will, Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So, I think that what we're seeing in chapter 7 is step 1. Chapter 21 is the finale. It's like you're at Dave Zock's fireworks show in chapter 7, and then the last three minutes is chapter 21, the grand finale. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Definitely not. All right. So, these are the chosen people of God. I mean, these are the ones from every tribe, language, nation, tongue. What a beautiful thing. Guys, you're included in that. And that is the best news ever. I was talking with Eden or Sela today, uh, just on the phone and just talking about some of the evils that are going on, even, you know, in Hastings and whatnot. And she just, I just can't wait for justice, for God to come and have justice. And you think all the sorrow and the weeping, you won't have any of that. It will be nothing but good. Well, yeah, and we talked about that last week. We don't know what that means. Out of the tribulation, does that mean that God just like raptured them out? Or that they were killed and so now they're brought out of it? I don't know. I th yeah. Here's the question that I don't know. How about Abraham, Adam, Joseph of Arimathea? Are they in this group or are they sleeping? until the end are they with the lord right now there's all these different views i don't have an answer for you i do believe they are with the lord in paradise whatever that means but it's not the heaven 
that you think of with the gold streets. That doesn't come until chapter 21. You die right now, you don't go to gold streets heaven yet. You do go to be with the Lord, though. You are in his presence. Yeah, so... Um, I don't know. We've got some verses that you're going to see coming up when we get to chapter 20. We'll talk more about this. But there is a first resurrection and the rest of the dead do not come to life until after. So the millennial reign, there's, there's some Christians living through the millennial reign and some that don't come alive until after the millennial reign. I'm unclear and foggy on all of that myself. For now, as I read this, I'm putting myself right there with this group. That these are the people who live... Yep, that are living through end times. The ones that Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the people of that generation, it may include others as well, but I just am not seeing that here. So let's say you die tomorrow. Are you going to be in this group? Maybe, but maybe not. Either way, the next thing that I think you're going to fully realize is you still will have no tear, no sorrow, none of those things. We saw back in chapter 5, there were people who had been killed in basically for their testimony of Jesus. They were before the throne saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And he says, it's going to be a little while longer until there's more that die as you did. So we've got these different groups of people. I don't understand the separation of all of it. And then, like we said, we've got the 144,000 too. And this is after. Or during. Yeah. I, I kind of tend to think that this is probably around the mid-tribulation, about after the first three and a half years. I can't say for sure, but that's kind of the most I can make sense out of it. Now... That leads into what we are going to say here. What does it mean to be chosen? We are God's chosen people. We hear Israel is God's chosen people. We hear there's the elect. Only the elect are saved. Uh, that word is used a lot today, uh, especially uh, with, with Calvinism. The elect. Only the elect are saved. What does that even mean? Well, we talked last week, I think it was, in regards to being elect is not necessarily even saved. Because God's people, the Jews, are the elect for sure, in part. Not all Jews are saved. To be elect in some ways is to be chosen to do a job. Just as I said, if you elect a president then he's chosen to be a job now he can be a godly man and he can be an ungodly man now sometimes i think that word elect though does mean uh, the saved ones but let me just give you what i mean here in genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 this is when we really see God calling somebody to be his people. 
Now, keep that in mind, before the calling, before Abraham, we still had people like Adam and Seth. Were they the elect? Were they called? Okay, yeah, they were. Maybe not like this, but they were. And this is why we have an Abrahamic covenant. So it says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and I will be a, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. One of the reasons God chose and called Abraham was to be a blessing to all peoples on earth. That was his role. That was what God created and called him to do. Now, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people. Who is he talking to? Well, believers. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may, what? Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Who are you supposed to declare this praise to? The world. You're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission, right? It's the same thing. Abraham was called to be a blessing to all people. You are called and chosen so that you can declare praises, uh, declare God to the people. What does it mean to be chosen? It means that you've got a job to do. It isn't necessarily about you being saved just because you're chosen. Well, first God called Abraham, chose him, then he chooses Isaac. He calls, uh, after that, he's then called the God of Israel. First he's called the God of Abraham. Then he's called the God of Abraham and Isaac. Then he's called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he's called the God of Israel. 203 times he's called the God of Israel. We've already talked about Israel a few weeks ago. But the function then of being Israel or being chosen by God, don't forget is, the bless, is to be a blessing to other nations. And I love this because here's Genesis 12, we see this. You jump ahead to Genesis 20 in verse 16 and following. We see that there is a covenant that is being lived out right away here in Genesis, shortly after this is given. God said, you're to be a blessing to the nations. So, we see Abraham going, and he is there before Abimelech. Abimelech, you know, he, he basically tells Sarah, don't tell him that, you know, you're my wife. Abimelech wants to take her as his wife. Abimelech has a dream and all of this. And so Abraham's busted. Certainly not living out the chosen lifestyle, it seems, at that time. But yet God in his faithfulness says... I'm stepping in. I'm not going to let Abimelech mess up this plan. And then rather than Abimelech saying, I can't believe you did that to me, just get out. We see Abraham blesses Abimelech. 
That seems opposite. Usually you think the greater blesses the lesser, right? Here you got the king of the land and Abraham, a foreigner coming into town. Well, the greater did bless the lesser. Abraham was the greater and he did bless Abimelech there. Later, in Genesis, same type of thing we see when we go to the uh, land of Egypt. What happens? Jacob comes into Pharaoh's presence. And before he leaves, blesses who? Jacob blesses Pharaoh. They were living out their call everywhere they go. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't God call somebody from Iowa, at least where they've got good soil? I mean, have you seen the soil in Iowa? Look at pictures of the soil in Israel. It's different. The soil in Israel is just, man, if I wanted to plant something, that's not where I would choose just by looks. What about Joseph's death? Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> so, why did God call Abraham and send him, you know, out of Haran to the land of Canaan? There are much prettier places. I have seen a ton of prettier places. I have seen places that would be much more fertile. Why call them and send them there? Exactly. That was, if, if at that time in the world, you could not go anywhere without meeting the God of all creation. If you were going to pass through, you had to go through Israel to get anywhere. He called them and he placed them there to be a light to the people. The very thing he called Abraham to do. He says, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you are going to be cursed. And he says, you are going to be a blessing to all people. He wanted them to be a light. So when he calls you, I don't think you should be worried about, well, you know, I'm not going to move to this state because, you know, the humidity or this or that or whatever the things that we decide. When you are called, you're taking upon the role that you are called to do. And wherever you can best be a light is where you should be planted. That's what it means to be called. And by the way, all nations were going to be blessed through Abraham, especially through Yeshua. Remember when Caiaphas even had his uh, prophetic statement because he was high priest that year. He said that, you know, not only would Jesus die for the Jewish nation, but really ultimately for the world. That's what it means to be called. So if you are God's elect, that means you have a job and you need to be living it out. Now, oh, where is she? As promised. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 can be outlined as silence, preparation, prayer, and punishment. 
You're going to see silence in verse 1. Proof that women aren't in heaven. Preparation. <laughs> My wife got in trouble once giving that joke because a fifth grader went home and told her mom, <laughs> Mrs. Young said women aren't going to be in heaven. So. No, it was in Oregon. Oh. Yeah. But I still love that joke. Preparation is verse 2. Prayer is verses 3 through 5. And punishment in verses 6 through 13. Now, we will see now the seventh seal being opened up. And the seventh seal simply brings the seven trumpet judgments. Remember, only the first four of the trumpet judgments uh, follow the first theme and then you're going to change themes but those first fourth are going to be seen here in chapter 8 only and then you'll have a, a break between the, the fourth and fifth event now chapter 8 verse 1 when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour that's as long as they can be quiet no. just a joke and probably a poor one. Verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, that would be an eighth one, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Well, just as the seventh day of creation, we see that the seventh day of creation was rest. The seventh seal, what does it usher in? He opens the seventh seal, silence, rest. And that is the pattern that you're going to see. I think it's because of creation. That's what the Sabbath is all about. When you keep the Sabbath, you are proclaiming the rest to come on the seventh day. That's part of it. This is a celebration and a reminder of deliverance to come. That's why God gets to choose when it is. During this period, the seven angels, now we saw them in seven cha or chapter 7, verse 2, and they were told to wait until the 144,000 were sealed. They've now been sealed. So now these seven angels are given these trumpets. Now in Old Testament times, trumpets were used for a, a number of things to gather the people together. We've seen that. It was also used though as a, a warning or a signal of a coming event. But most often it was used as, at least what's recorded in Scripture, is in preparation for judgment, war, ultimately. What we see is that these seven angels with the seven trumpets bring war to earth. God's wrath. The seals weren't God's wrath, it didn't seem. It seemed like it was primarily man's wrath, the Antichrist's wrath. This is the wrath of God. You, as Thessalonians tells us, you are not appointed 
to the wrath of God. You are not appointed to have that at all. You will not be experiencing the hardships of these trumpets. I do not believe at all. I don't think there's any question about it. Okay. Now, it is a righteous judgment. Don't forget that. We talked about that before, that, you know, capital punishment, when we discussed that, that it is just what God is doing here. Um, it's interesting that this eighth angel, he came and he stood under the altar to offer incense of prayers. Do you remember in Revelation 5 where the people who had been slain that had been killed because of their testimony, where were they? Under the altar. Under the altar. So this angel is going there. And it says he was given much incense. And here it says with the prayers of all the saints. The incense seems to be the prayers of the saints. So, even in the Greek here, the Greek word indicates that the incense is the prayers. Not that this is just a symbol of, and here's incense and he also has the prayers. But the Greek seems to indicate that the prayers, or the incense, are the prayers of the saints. And I think that that is what, in the Old Testament, and in, even in the New Testament when the temple was there, when they were offering incense, that that's what it was supposed to be. It was, that was the symbol of the prayers going up to heaven. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, we will continue to see this altar as we go through Revelation, but it's important to remember its location. It's in the most holy place. That is a representation then of the new Jerusalem, but where the throne of God is. So the prayers are always before the throne of God. We've talked about this in the past as well, but just to remind you that your prayers, when they are offered up to God, they don't just dissipate and go away like we see smoke doing. They will remain there forever. We talked about Abraham maybe, you know, praying for a child all those years. And then someday some angel comes and says, hey, I've come here to answer your prayers. He said, prayer, what have we been praying about? Uh, you know, you're going to have a son. And he said, whoa, I haven't prayed for that in 30 years. But it was always before God. Your prayers do not dissipate and go away. It's just it'll be answered in God's timing. But I, I, I just love that thought that Abraham, I'm sure, had not prayed for a child because he was, you know, almost 100 years old. There's no way he's been praying, you know, for a kid when he was well past that time. He had given up on that. What's that? Yeah, right. That's for sure. So anyway, um, an interesting thing here. Oh, yeah. I was just going to, before you got into another topic, so you would say that at the very latest, this is where you would see a quote-unquote rapture take place. After the seal, before the rapture. Yes. Now, this is going to be one of the things that 
I've adapted slightly from my book. In my book, I see it happening at the seventh trumpet. Okay? Now, there's going to be reasons for that, and I'm not going to recant on that. I think it's just an aspect of what's happening. Right now, they have been delivered. They're before the throne of God. They're uh, that we just read here in chapter 7. But when we get to the seventh trumpet, that's when the rewarding of those saints is going to take place. That's when I think the feet of Jesus are going to come and touch ground. But that hasn't happened yet. So that between the rapture of people and the actual rewarding and seeing it, we got to get these seven trumpets filled. I suggest that these seven trumpets are going to be pretty quick. That it is not going to be a big period of time. And are we, we're three and a half years in already. Or anywhere from three and a half to the end of the three and a half. Yeah. But I don't know. And I don't think I'm going to be able to find out. Uh, if you read the book of Habakkuk, you're also going to see there is silence before judgment is carried out as you read through that book. We won't go there, but just kind of keep that in mind. Again, very fitting because we have silence here before God's judgment is about to be let out. Okay, very fitting. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, May my prayers be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then after that, you start seeing judgment come. I think that there is a solemnity about judgment. As much as we want to see God bring judgment and justice, there still is this period of I don't want to say grief or sorrow because there's not grief or sorrow, but a seriousness. And I think that's why the silence is there. I think this, the silence is to sober us up to realize how serious this is. And I think it would be good for us to keep that in mind and maybe even once a day take time to be silent and push out all of these things that are in this world distracting us from doing our job as chosen people. And say, I, this co-worker of mine, this family member of mine, they're, they're going to experience these, these judgments if they don't repent. i got to be serious about this. I need, to, I need to stop. I need to Selah. So as you listen to this Selah, you remember that. <laughs> to stop, to pause. Because I don't think that we're going to be up in heaven watching this. Go, oh, yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, this is what you deserve. I think it's going to be silence and sober. Because God loves those people too, but he has to be just. And it is loving for him to bring his wrath. And it's hard for us to relate to that. But that is, as we've talked about in the past, that's the attitude of Moses, that was the attitude of Paul, and that's the attitude of Jesus. When God was about to destroy the Israelites, 
who have been nothing but a pain in the rear to Moses. Moses says, no, Lord, blot me out. Blot me out instead. So just keep that in mind as well. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. I think some of those prayers that we saw in chapter 5, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Ascended before God and from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared uh, themselves to sound. It's possible that the reason this happens the way it's listed here is that this action is in response or an answer to the prayers of those saints. Now, you may say, well, how can you be praying how long until you avenge our blood, but yet it's a sober situation? I think it can be both. I am going to be like so relieved. How long, O oh Lord, until you avenge the blood? Stop this killing. Stop the pain. Stop the hurt. I can still feel that, but yet at the same time have this feeling of, of sorrow. Well, not sorrow. You won't feel sorrow, but you know what I mean, a seriousness. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling before. I really only have had it once where there is two emotions that are absolutely opposite and you don't know what to do with them. Joy and yet sorrow at the same time. I can't describe it. But it is such a strange feeling. I don't know if that's what this is going to be like or not. But all I know is that they are now filling from this altar of incense, coals, fire from the altar, and they throw it on the earth. Do you remember what Romans says that we are to do for our enemies? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you will what? Heat burning coals on his head. That may be more literal than you ever realized. If your enemy is hungry, and you feed him, and you give him something to drink, and they do not receive it, and they still continue to reject God, what's going to happen to them? Burning coals are going to be thrown on their heads from heaven. That when we love our enemy, you're giving them a choice. When you tell them the gospel, you're giving them a choice. You can either follow the Lord or you can reject him. And when we love our enemies and they don't repent, they are storing up wrath for themselves. I will hopefully come back to, this is also important, there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. Just mark that because that's something else that we see time-wise later on, and I think it might be helpful. So just maybe underline that part 
because uh, it is going to be important. I am not going to get into the trumpets here tonight. We're not going to start them, but we're at least up to the point of them. Um, the uh, pouring of judgment upon our enemies, again, our goal isn't hoping that that happens, but rather that it is going to happen. There was, it, you know, it's based on their choice, though. I'm trying to think of the words there in Scripture where, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? And I know a guy who said once, the same reason a farmer fattens a pig up for the slaughter. In essence, when we love our enemy, that's what you're doing. Remember that the Amorites, God would not allow the Israelites to go in and conquer yet. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. What I was hoping to get to this week, but I'm going to give you a taste of it. I think that God may have given you this life for the very same reason, but not for the slaughter, but for the enjoyment. What I mean by that is God has given us a short period of life right now. And we are given a choice of how you're going to live this life. You can either be fattened up for the slaughter and store up wrath, get more evil and more evil and more evil so that you're going to have more punishment and more punishment and more punishment, which, by the way, is exactly what Romans says. They store up wrath for themselves for the day of God's wrath. Or you get to choose to use this life to store up blessings and glory for you in heaven. I said something for the first time this week to my wife that I had a hard time saying out loud because it seemed so theologically wrong. But every time I would try and back it up or prove it wrong scripturally, I kept coming back thinking it is scriptural. And that is this. I've kind of grown up thinking it's all about God, it's all about God, it's all about God, it's all about God. We're, we're just nothing. God, God glory, he's sovereign, he's this. God, 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 you're nothing. I don't think that's true. Why did God create earth? For you. He didn't have to. It was for you. He gave you all dominion. It was created literally for you. Why did he create heaven? It wasn't for him. It was for you. And so I've had this idea, and I'm not saying that there, there isn't an aspect of this, but that he put us here on this earth for him. We're to serve him. That's your goal. All you've got to do is go and serve him. Well, there's truth to that. But why are you supposed to serve him? For you. For your benefit. Remember last week, I think I talked, mentioned it last week. I have just been meditating on this all week long. 
how amazed I am that almost all of my main memories that I think about or that seem to be very foundational in my life all go back to my high school years pretty much. Maybe a little bit into college, but most of it was high school. High school shaped me into who I am today. Not to say that I'm not different, I am. In, in a lot of ways and in a lot of better ways. But nonetheless, my memories, wow, when I was growing up I did this. If I'm telling a story to my kids, 99% of them seem to be coming from back when I was in that age period. Any psychologist today will tell you how important those early years are on for your kids. Now, again, I believe that those you know, first five years are just as important shaping how you're going to be in high school too, but our memories don't go back to that as much. Your memories are high school. And you are forever known as what you were in high school. I, I hate to say it, but there are some girls that were in my high school that to this day, if I saw them, I would think bad things. <laughs> and I'll bet some of them are godly, great people now. But that's what I remember them as. There is something about those years that form and shape the entire rest of your life. And I thought, now you're telling us this. Yeah, yeah, I know. Then I thought, could it be that that too is a pattern of true life, eternal life? That God has placed you here on earth. This is your high school years right now, folks. And it is forming and shaping the rest of your eternity. And I thought, that's exactly what scripture says. You are like that song, that's all the lumber you sent. If you remember that song, I don't know anything more beyond that or who or anything. But what's it going to say in Revelation 20? You will be rewarded according to your works. If you decide to use the life that God has given you now to just go and serve yourself, to go live life and wait it out until the Lord comes back. You'll be in heaven if you know the Lord, but I'm telling you what, you're not sending much lumber ahead. If you choose to take this life and serve the Lord, I think in heaven you're going to look back and go, wow, I, am, I didn't waste my life. I've got a lot of regrets of things that I wish I did differently in high school. And I don't want to have that when I get to heaven. I know I won't have regrets. I, I get that, but you know the analogy. But I'm not so sure that that might not be why God placed you here. That he is giving you time to shape your eternity. And that part of your earthly life is for you. You get to do what you want. Serve Him so that you will have an eternity of joy, bliss, glory, lots of it. Or serve yourself and have an eternity with Him, but little glory. Revelation, 
Yeah, your works will fall. There are verses galore that are going to talk about this. It is scriptural. And so if it's all about God, and granted, there is truth to that in the sense, our crown, our works, they're God's. We can do all things through Christ. He's empowering you, though, because it gives him glory for you to be glorified. It is about you in a way. And that glorifies him. You serve him, he's glorified, but you will be glorified in heaven. But he's giving you an opportunity right now. What are you going to do with it? Do you know how many times I said, man, if I could go back to high school right now? Or how many times I would love to go back to my freshman year of college? Oh, man, would I have fun with professors. I would love it. It's just food for thought, but I want you to think about that, and we maybe touch on that again next week. But, but Simmer, you're chosen by God to do something. But I think part of that means he wants you to be your best you now <laughs> because it's for your sake. And that means we've got to change our thinking. We've got to get this world out of our head. We've got to get these distractions out of our head. We need to start loving one another. We need to start praying for one another. We need to start sharing the word with people around us. We need to stop being worried about the things of this world. So, let's close in prayer.